The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Please take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Mark 13. Mark chapter 13, it's still the final week of Jesus' life. In fact, it's still Tuesday, where we've been since the end of chapter 11, one of the longest days of his earthly ministry. Delegations of Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees have slithered up and tried to trap him in his words and embarrass him and discredit him before the crowds, only to find that actually they are the ones on trial. Which brings us to chapter 13 sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is speaking from the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. This is actually the longest section of teaching in all of Mark's gospel. 
And it's not just the longest, it's also the hardest, the hardest to understand. Welcome this morning to one of the most perplexing and debated chapters in all the Bible. In his book on this chapter, yes, a whole book on this chapter, theologian Robert Stein says that Mark 13 has attracted more attention from critics of Scripture than any other similarly sized biblical passage. Or as R.C. Sproul remarked, I don't think a week went by when I was in seminary that some scholar didn't seek to rub our noses in the difficulties of the Olivet Discourse, trying to use the text to disprove the inspiration of the Bible. And before we look at it, I, I think it's just important at the outset to admit it's difficult, that it does raise some uncomfortable questions, that we're not going to walk out of here this morning with all of our questions neat and tidily resolved in our minds. People who struggle to believe in the reliability of Scripture, and, and I imagine there are visitors here today, and that describes you, and we're thrilled you're here. People who struggle to believe in the reliability of Scripture are not going to be helped by evangelical Christians who act as if the Bible is always easy to understand. It's not. There are some real difficulties, some real tensions, and I think we need to be honest about that. I don't want River City to ever be a place where we can't ask uncomfortable questions about the Bible. Because if the Bible is actually true as we claim it is, then it'll be able to withstand our toughest questions. That is, if we're willing to do the hard work of interpreting it on its own terms. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 13, 1 to 27. The main idea of the passage and therefore the main idea of this message. Jesus rules over the chaos of history. So trust his promises and rest in his plan. Jesus rules over the chaos of history. So trust his promises and rest in his plan. We'll think about this. We'll see this in four unfolding points as we make our way through the chapter. First, think again. It's verses 1 to 4. Second, watch out. Verses 5 to 13. Third, be ready. Verses 20, uh, 14 to 23. And finally, take heart. Verses 24 to 27. Think again. Watch out, be ready, and take heart. First, think again. Verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple. Now, we've got to pause lest we miss the significance of this phrase. This is not just an observation about physical movement. It's the culmination of chapters 11 and 12, all of which have taken place where? in the temple courts. And so the words here, Jesus was leaving the temple, is an indictment. 
It's describing a definitive break. He's walking away never to return again. In fact, it's another biblical Ichabod moment. Ichabod being the Hebrew word for the glory has departed. Just as in Ezekiel 10, the presence of Yahweh had finally left the temple due to the people's sin, so now, thousands of years later, Yahweh incarnate is doing the same. Now back to the verse. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher! What massive stones, what magnificent buildings. So even though Jesus has been condemning the temple system in chapters 11 and 12, the disciples are still enamored by it. And on a human level, you can't blame them. It was an enamoring, dazzling, jaw-dropping sight. Both the, the sanctuary and the temple wall ascended 150 feet into the air. The first century historian Josephus tells us that some of the single stones weighed uh, were, were 60 feet in length and weighing more than a million pounds. You could fit 12 football feet inside the enclosure. This was a sprawling, massive, impressive complex. Hey, Jesus, can you believe this? Isn't this the most impressive thing you've ever seen? Verse 2, do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Like, what? He doesn't say, yeah, it's nice, but you know how history goes. I'm not sure it'll last forever. No, he issues a confident prediction. You're staring at future ruins. Enjoy it now because the clock is ticking. He's daring, daring to uh, predict some kind of violent, disruptive, irreversible event. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign they're about to be fulfilled? As first century Jews, they simply can't imagine a world without a temple. They can't imagine a world without a temple. So they're asking, when will these things happen? Meaning, when will the temple be destroyed? Which for them means it's the same thing as asking, when's the end of the age? This is even clearer in Matthew's account. Matthew 24, 3. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The end of the temple And the end of the world was a single complex of events in their mind. But not in Jesus's, as we'll see. For now, I just want you to hold on to that little phrase, these things. That little phrase in verse 4, these things. Jesus says, hey, that enormous temple that you're so impressed with, it's going to crumble. And in response, they ask, when will these things happen. Point two, watch out. Watch out. Verse five, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. 
When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. What's interesting about this paragraph is that many of the phrases are famously associated with end time events, or at least precursors to the end of the world. False prophets, earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars. Many Christians assume these things mean the end is near, but Jesus actually says the opposite. Did you notice? He says the exact opposite opposite of what many American evangelicals have been conditioned to hear when they hear these phrases. He says they are not signs. Again, verse 7, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. In other words, don't assume these headlines indicate the end. They don't. They're par for the course in a fallen world. And specifically, par for the course as you await that unthinkable pile of rubble, those future ruins. See, in context, Jesus is not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the temple. And even, in, even though in the disciples' minds, these two things were conflated as one, Jesus separates them. Everything in verses 5 to 8 actually happened in the first century. It's documented history. There were numerous pretenders claiming to be the Messiah who were soon discredited. You can read about a couple of them in the book of Acts. And just as Jesus predicted, there were several famines, particularly during the reign of the emperor Claudius from the year 41 to 54. There were also massive earthquakes, such as the one that shook the region of Phrygia in the year 61, and another that rocked a famous city called Pompeii the following year. In verse 9, Jesus continues forecasting the near future. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, don't worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever's given you at the time, for it's not you speaking but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. These verses read like a preview of the book of Acts. (laughs) The apostles were flogged in synagogues and persecuted. They did stand before governors and kings, such as Agrippa and Festus. The gospel did go forth from the Jewish world to the Roman world. That's why Paul could say in Colossians 1.6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. That is the whole known world at the time, not to mention it had already penetrated Africa through the Ethiopian eunuch. And according to tradition, apostles like Thomas took it as far as India. Now, even though I think verses 5 to 13 predict events that occurred in the first century, again, just read the book of Acts. 
And specifically, events that occurred before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Because remember, that's what Jesus is responding to. That's what he's talking about. Hey, that temple's going to fall. When, Jesus? How are we going to know it's about to happen? He's talking about stuff leading up to that climactic moment. Even though I think this stuff happened in the first century leading up to AD 70, certainly there is enduring relevance for us in these verses, and especially in the commands. Verse 5, watch out. He's talking about deception. Watch out for deception. The disciples needed to hear it for their lifetimes, and we need to hear it for ours. This is why we have to know God's word so that we can detect counterfeits in light of it. In Acts 17, the Berean Jews were commended because they received the message with great eagerness. This is Acts 17, 11, And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They didn't just take an apostle at his word. They checked his teaching against the Hebrew scriptures and they weren't rebuked for it. They were commended. They weren't half engaged, listening mindlessly. They were checking his teaching. If you want to avoid being deceived by lies, you must grow in your knowledge and love of the truth, which is another way of saying your knowledge and love of his word. And verse 9 gives us another command, be on your guard. And that's in the context of persecution. Just as persecution came for the disciples, so it'll come for us. No, it won't always be physical in nature, but it will require a cost. If you're following Jesus, it will require some cost. It, It might be economic, it might be social, it could even be relational within your own home. But no true follower of Jesus will be spared hardship. And every true follower of Jesus will endure, not perfectly, but genuinely endure to the end. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, same command to us, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Jesus is specifically addressing these disciples about what awaits them in the coming four decades, but his words also reverberate through the centuries even to us today. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are not above these dangers of of distraction and deception and persecution. We need grit and fortitude and the staying power of the Holy Spirit every bit as much as the earliest Christians did. Think again. Watch out. Point three, be ready. Be ready. Jesus continues his train of thought in verse 14. Remember, he's still responding to the question, when will these things happen? When will this massive temple be reduced to rubble? And what will be the sign it's about to happen? Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this won't take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now you may be thinking, okay, pastor, I've been tracking with you till now. I mean, you've said all that other stuff Famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, which sound pretty apocalyptic to me, Pastor, but you've said all that actually happened in the first century, but surely this section is describing the end times. Well, not necessarily. Look at the details. Don't just import a, a series of modern novels into the Word of God. Look at the details. They, these details are geographically specific. These are instructions for people living in and near Judea. In fact, I think that phrase in verse 14, see that little phrase, let the reader understand, is Mark's little editorial insertion to his Christian readers in the Roman Empire that they really need to pay attention to this. See, Jesus has moved from verses 5 to 8 hey, there will be a number of non-signs, things that shouldn't alarm you, to hear in verse 14, something that should alarm you. Here is the sign. He's saying, you asked me when the temple will fall and what the sign will be that it's about to happen. Here you go. It's not all those other convulsions. It's this. When you see this one event, you can't linger any longer. You've got to hightail it into the mountains, and you should hope it doesn't happen in winter, in the rainy season, and that your wife or daughter isn't pregnant or carrying an infant because it will be an unprecedented moment of horror and distress. And what is the event? What is the trigger event for such drastic instructions? What is the sign you should pay attention to? The prophet Daniel's words coming to pass. Hundreds of years prior in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, he forecasted a wicked ruler who would march into the temple and commit a pagan act of sacrilege. Daniel 11:31. His armed forces, this is referring to the future wicked ruler, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they'll set up the abomination that causes desolation. Amazingly, that prophecy had found initial fulfillment in the year 164 BC. We know this from sources outside of scripture, non-Christian historians from the ancient world. A Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes entered the temple sanctuary in 164 BC and sacrificed a pig on the altar. But Jesus is saying that wasn't the only instance it's going to happen again. And sure enough, 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, it did. In AD 70, again, this is not Christians writing history. 
This is documented history from ancient historians in the Roman world. In AD 70, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and a general named Titus made it all the way into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and performed pagan acts just as Jesus had predicted. He continues the prediction in verse 20. If the Lord hadn't cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he's chosen, he's shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. In Acts 5, we hear about two of these pretenders, Theudas and Judas the Galilean, who made great claims about themselves and convinced people to follow him, to follow them, but whose movements, whose movements quickly fizzled out. And then surely, just, just think logically about this, surely in the pressure cooker political environment of the Romans approaching Jerusalem, there would be self-appointed strongmen who at that moment would capitalize on the fear and the mayhem and rise up and say, trust me, follow me. I'll help us overthrow the Romans. But Jesus says, don't be deceived. Also notice that term in verses 20 and 22, the elect, the elect, those whom God has chosen. Just as he knew his elect then, so he knows his elect now. And believer, you don't have to spend any time worrying about whether you're among the elect. If you keep repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, you are. It's not that trusting him makes you elect, it's that it proves your elect. Enduring in faith is evidence you've been chosen by God, and that should steal you with assurance, especially when life is hardest and your faith feels weakest. Oh, beloved, the doctrine of election is the heart of assurance. I don't know what you've heard about that doctrine in the past. I don't know what you believe about that doctrine, but biblically understood, the doctrine of election is the heart of assurance. If you love Jesus, it's because he first loved you. Election is a love doctrine. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And in the first century, Amid all this physical and political turmoil, the Lord did make good on his promise. He did preserve his elect. When the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 70, 1.1 million Jews were killed. But in the 11th hour, the Jewish Christians had escaped to the hills. And, by the way, it happened in summer, not in winter which means the prayers of verse 18 were answered. Friend, if you're skeptical about the Bible, if you're skeptical that Jesus was more than a great teacher, but, but actually who he claimed to be, actually the Son of God, then you need to reckon this morning with the incredible accuracy of these predictions. No other Jewish rabbi at the time was predicting this stuff. 
This was unheard of. No one was saying that the temple would be leveled within a generation. But Jesus did. And that's precisely what happened in AD 70. R.C. Sproul goes so far as to say, quote, if any text should prove Jesus' claims of divinity, it's this one. He clearly prophesied the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, along with numerous accompanying events years before they happened. This is predictive prophecy of the highest magnitude. Such accuracy also argues strongly for the divine inspiration of sacred scripture. So the same chapter you may point to as a skeptic and say, look how convoluted this is, we would just gently point you to and say, take another look. What is your explanation for this unthinkable prediction coming true? Even non-Christian historians from the ancient world attest that the events leading up to AD 70 unfolded down to the details exactly as this particular Jewish rabbi said they would. What are you going to do with that? See, the Bible is actually not a book for unthinking, gullible people. It doesn't just tell you to believe a list of nonsensical, abstract things with no regard for historical evidence. Now, it's true that many things must be taken on faith, but faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith is not the opposite of reason. It's just the opposite of sight. See, sometimes I think we sophisticated modern people can think, I have a college education. I live in a scientific age. I don't believe in old prophecies. I don't believe in a virgin getting pregnant. I don't believe in a corpse getting up from the dead. As if such things were routine for dim-witted first century people looking for a miracle under every rock. Friend, Christianity is calling you to think more deeply not less. And when it comes to prophecy, the Bible never asks you to believe against all reason. Against all reason. In fact, the Bible calls you to test prophecies. And if they don't come true, that's evidence. The Bible says that's evidence they were spoken by a charlatan. But Jesus is not a charlatan. He is the ultimate prophet. And just as this preposterous prediction on the final Tuesday of his life, came true. So will everything else he promised, including his own return to judge the living and the dead. Point four, take heart. Take heart. Verse 24, but in those days, following that distress, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, is this referring to the destruction of Jerusalem or the end of the world? I think here the answer is yes. These prophetic words from Isaiah find fulfillment, a a kind of initial fulfillment in God's destruction of, uh, in God's destruction of God's house and holy city. After all, this is just poetic Old Testament language for the judgment of nations. Yes, it's cosmic language, but we even speak this way. 
We even use poetic, cosmic language like this. We, we say things like, the sky is falling. It was an earth-shattering event. But even though there's immediate fulfillment in AD 70, I do think Jesus, in verses 24 to 27, is lengthening his gaze and speaking not just about judgment on Jerusalem, but about the final judgment on the world to which it points, which is triggered by the Lord's own return. Verse 26, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, Jesus evokes imagery from ancient prophecy, this time from Daniel 7, 13, about one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and approaching the ancient of days. Now, some wonderful Bible teachers, some of my favorite Bible teachers, in fact, take Jesus' words here to be referring not to the second coming, believe it or not, but to his ascension and enthronement in heaven, of which AD 70, the the destruction of Jerusalem, is a sign because it vindicates his words. And they rightly point out that in Daniel 7, that original context, the Son of Man is actually not coming on clouds from heaven to earth, but from, if anything, earth to heaven. In Daniel 7, it seems like enthronement, not return. And so they say it must be the same thing here. But as I've stared at it, and stared at it I have, I've become more convinced that the event Jesus is prophesying is exactly what, on the surface, it appears to be. His visible, triumphant return. One of the reasons I think this is because of how this same phrase from Daniel 7, that contested phrase, shows up in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. The apostle John writes, look, he is coming with the clouds. There it is. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. And John brackets that image in Revelation 1, 7. He brackets it in Revelation 1, 6 and Revelation 1, 8. So he, he brackets it immediately before and after with a statement about Jesus being not just the one who was and who is, but also the one who is to come. And so I think the main thing the apostles were deriving from Daniel 7 wasn't so much the direction of the travel as the fact that the Son of Man will one day ride in glory on the clouds and that it will be unmistakably visible to everyone. Verse 27 And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Again, I don't think this is AD 70, though I understand the the argument for it. I don't think this is referring to the, the spread of the gospel thereafter. I think this is, in verse 27, the same scene Paul envisions in 1 Thessalonians 5. Listen to these words, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There's that Daniel 7 language again. Where is Jesus? According to 1 Thessalonians 5, returning in the clouds. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This in 1 Thessalonians 5, by the way, is, is not, if this term means anything to you, it's, it's not describing a pre-tribulational rapture. If you notice, it's not a secret event, it's public. And we will be the welcome party for the return of the king. One day he will split the skies and return physically, triumphantly, climactically, and as we'll see next week, suddenly he will pour out justice on his enemies and mercy on his ex-enemies, his own people. Friend, which group will you be a part of? Do you realize that today you can actually transfer? You can move from being his enemy to his friend simply by trusting that on the cross he absorbed the judgment you deserved? Doesn't matter if you're not the worst person you know, he absorbed the judgment you deserve, not just for doing lots of overtly wicked things, but also for your yawning boredom with the things of God. Your passive indifference to the will and to the ways of God. When he died on the cross, the sky did go black. It was as if the cosmos was thrown into upheaval. Almost as if verse 24 was taking place in miniature at Calvary. But the Messiah didn't just die and descend into darkness. He rose on Easter morning so that if you repent and believe in him, you can be saved and you can be secure. One more application before we wrap this up. I, I, I've taught before on the concept of theological triage. Theological triage, which simply means not all doctrines are created equal. They're not all equally essential, just like not every wall inside your house is load-bearing. There are first-rank doctrines that separate Christians from non-Christians. There are second-rank doctrines that separate, say, Baptists from Presbyterians. And there are third-rank doctrines that even members of the same church can disagree about. You don't have to agree with my interpretation of this chapter to be a member of this church. And that's because we're talking about third rank issues. How you interpret the details of Mark 13, which parts happened in the first century, which parts still await fulfillment, that is not an issue on which any local church should divide over. This is why a statement of faith is so important because while it requires belief in the big detail, namely that King Jesus will return, it leaves space for differing on the little details. This is counterintuitive, but true. One way to preserve sound doctrine in a church, one way to preserve sound doctrine in a church is to leave ample room for Christian freedom. Otherwise, a church can easily succumb to legalism by requiring agreement on something they shouldn't by requiring agreement on a third-rank issue. See, when we lack a robust understanding of Christian freedom and space for conscience, we will be tempted to do what? 
If we don't have a high view of liberty of conscience, we will be tempted to stick more into the gospel than is there. That is agreement on a wider range of issues than is necessary for doing church together. I have a friend who preached this chapter, Mark 13, last year, and some people left the church over his interpretation of it. Even though it was orthodox and reasonable. Beloved, one sign you're growing in spiritual maturity is you don't treat every issue as if it's a gospel emergency. Good night. At River City, let's forge unity. Let's forge unity around the things where Scripture is clear and avoid division around the things where it's not. Well, remember I said at the beginning that for the disciples, there was no distinction between end of temple and end of world. And yet in this passage, we've seen that Jesus dares to separate them. And here's why I think he does. Here's why I think he does. Because the siege of Jerusalem and its aftermath will be the hardest thing these Jewish followers have ever faced. It won't be the end of the world, but it'll feel like it. And so in verse 24, it's like he telescopes beyond the fall of the temple to his own triumphant return. Doesn't it make sense why he'd do that? He's lifting their gaze to the day when the world really will end and when their enemies who look so invincible now, who are going to look so invincible in AD 70, will be judged forever. The point of all these predictions is, predictions is not to entertain or simply intrigue. It's not to give a precise blueprint or timetable for the future. It's to remind us that King Jesus rules and reigns over the chaos of history. The earliest Christians lived in an incredibly difficult environment, more difficult than what we face today. And yet, just read the book of Acts. Just read some early church history. They didn't spend all their time bemoaning the state of the world and panicking and saying, look what the world is coming to. Instead, they simply took heart and said, look what has come into the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you that you would help us. Even when we come to a passage that is difficult, Lord, even when we come to a passage where we may not be completely confident, we've got all the little details right. We praise you, Lord, that the big idea is clear, and that is that you reign and rule sovereign over the chaos of history, and therefore we can trust your promises and rest in your plan. Help us to be a church, Lord, that knows how to treat doctrines in accordance with their respective importance and weight. Help us not to divide over things you never intended us to, but do help us, Lord, to be a people who endure and who hope and who look forward to the day when you will split the skies and return and make all things brand new. And it's the name, in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus, we pray.